Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How long should we wait before we write the history of a decade? We can write things down as they happen, but that's only the first draft. Time has to pass before we can wrap our heads around exactly what happened, what it all meant, and the lasting effect of those 10 years. Something that may have appeared to be insignificant at the time may have turned out to be a really big deal. It was only after many years had passed and the ripples from that thing or that event have played out, do we realize that, wow, holy crap, that was historic. When it comes to the history of music, it's often convenient to break things down into decades because that seems to be the natural order of things. Music is a great barometer of the life and times of a decade because it's so intertwined with society, you know, politics, economics, demographics, everything to do with culture. Understand the music of a decade and you'll have a better understanding of what happened during that time in the world at large. The 1950s marked the birth of rock and roll. The 1960s brought us the Beatles, the rise of the album, the mega rock festival. In the 70s, we got punk and metal, disco and rap. Uh, the 80s, well, techno pop, hair metal, the era of classic rock. The 90s, of course, were all about grunge and the Lollapalooza generation and Britpop. So that takes us to the end of the 20th century. And as transformative and disruptive as the 90s were, I mean, the internet, cell phones, sampling, that was only a warm-up for the next 10 years. And by the time that decade was over, everything had changed. This is a history of that first decade of the 21st century, which we are going to call the aughts. This is part one. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the first episode of a multi-part look back at the music between 2000 and 2009, the so-called aughts. Our focus will be on alt-rock, but in the coming weeks, we'll need to zig and zag because there's so much more to this music history than just, well, music. And we're going to start by looking at the state of things as we moved into the new millennium. As the clock ticked down towards midnight on December 31st, 1999, there was plenty of uncertainty across the planet. Would the world's computers crash or freak out because of the so-called Y2K bug? Would the power grid go down? Would all the ballistic missiles fire off and bring the world to an end? The U.S. handed the Panama Canal back to Panama. What was that going to mean for world shipping and the global economy? Uh, we weathered both those stories, of course, but we should have been paying more attention to Boris Yeltsin's resignation as the president of Russia. As 1999 came to an end, he handed power over to some unknown guy named 
Vladimir Putin. But if you were a rock fan, frankly, you had other things to worry about. The alt-rock revolution that kick-started the 1990s had fractured and become terribly unfocused, devolving into a series of polarizing sounds. The popular records all seemed to come from an unending stream of one-hit wonders. The Gen Xers that propelled grunge and the punk rock revival and Britpop and all the other alternative genres that went mainstream during the 90s had grown up and moved on, leaving Generation Y to deal with things. Now, we'd seen this coming as early as 1996, when pop started flexing its muscles again. Spice Girls, Britney Spears, uh, Backstreet Boys, Mariah Carey, NSYNC. After years of seeing rock acts in the upper reaches of the charts, Gen Y was now pushing their pop idols to the top. Electronic music was also exploding. What we call EDM today was known as Electronica in most circles back in 1999. Acts like The Prodigy and The Chemical Brothers and Aphex Twin were selling boatloads of albums. It seemed that everybody wanted to be a DJ. Sales of turntables and CD decks and mixers spiked. Guitar sales fell. Meanwhile, hip-hop and rap marched on, attracting more and more fans every single week. Let's start now by pulling some of this apart. And before we dive into the aughts, we need to back up a bit to revisit where we actually were at the end of the 1990s when it comes to music. And let's begin with a crossover between rock and rap. This was something that had been gestating since the late 80s, but it had really blown up by the latter part of the 1990s. There was, however, a lot of disagreement over whether or not this was a good thing. The result had been tagged new metal. It took aspects of grunge, ground in some metal, and often featured rap-like vocals. It was heavy, it was intense, it was in your face, sometimes violent, sometimes misogynist, and not exactly what you'd call radio-friendly. Yet, for a time at the end of the 1990s, it was insanely popular. In fact, there was a period where this was the most popular of all the alt-rock sounds. On June 22, 1999, Limp Bizkit released their significant other album. It debuted on the top of the charts, selling 643,000 copies in its first week. In its second week, it breached the 1 million mark. Later that summer, they played the 30th anniversary Woodstock Festival in Rome, New York, and their set was marred by violence, sexual assaults, and vandalism. It was not a good look. Limp Biscuit with the song that helped all hell break loose at the Woodstock 99 Festival. This did the new metal scene no favors. But even still, their next album, the horribly named Chocolate Starfish in the Hot Dog Flavored Water, sold 400,000 copies on the day it was released in 2000, and a full million by the end of its first week. There was a lot of anger and rage out there, apparently. But not all new metal was as fratboyish. Korn had a number one album with their Follow the Leader record, they were still very intense, but they also could have an introspective, sensitive, and vulnerable side. Korn also became the first rock band to play the Apollo Theater in Harlem, and if that doesn't demonstrate a certain level of mainstream acceptance, I don't know what will. Others followed. Stained, Orgy, Slipknot. Then there were the offshoots, groups that weren't pure new metal, but had some of the sonic trappings. Crazy Town, Papa Roach, Disturbed, and this new band out of L.A. called Lincoln Park. Meanwhile, Kid Rock had spent years forging a sound that was a mix between rap, hard rock, and metal that somehow ended up being added to the new metal bucket. His Devil Without a Cause album would end up selling 14 million copies. Because I wanna be a cowboy. 
Besides new metal, hip-hop, and rap, electronica was demanding a lot of attention. Again, this is what we called EDM back at the end of the 90s. It was a term that encompassed everything from techno to deep house, from electronic dance to ambient. You could dance to it or just chill. The biggest segment of this was the dance culture. Following the lead of what was known as big beat outfits like the Prodigy and the Chemical Brothers, others started dabbling in these sounds. Lots of keyboards and drum machines and loops and samples and multiple remixes. U2 went deep with their pop album with, uh, well, shall we say, mixed success. Meanwhile, Madonna scored a huge hit with her Ray of Light album, produced by one-time DJ William Orbit. Similarly, electronic music started coming out of Bjork and Moby and Underworld and The Crystal Method and Daft Punk and Air. Electronica sounds started seeping into movies and TV and TV commercials. Composers of music for video games went deep into the genre. And things evolved very quickly. Jungle, drum and bass, electro clash, flavors of dub and disco and house and techno, garage and a million other combinations. Much of this music was very evanescent, released on white label vinyl, played at clubs and raves and then discarded for the next thing. But stars did evolve. DJs like Norman Cook were able to get out from behind the turntables and compose some very mainstream friendly dance tracks like this. He was known as Fatboy Slim. Norman Cook, better known as Fatboy Slim from 1998. The other thing that we need to talk about at the end of the 90s was the massive rise in pop music. 1999 began with the release of Britney Spears' Baby One More Time album, which would go on to sell over 10 million copies by the end of the year. 10 million copies in a year! And then in June, the Backstreet Boys' Millennium album broke an all-time sales record, moving 1.13 million copies just in its first week. A scan of the album charts also shows number one placings by Naz, DMX, the notorious B.I.G., Celine Dion. Meanwhile, the singles charts were dominated by Cher, TLC, Christina Aguilera, Ricky Martin, R. Kelly, and Destiny's Child. Now, occasionally, some rock acts did break through in a big way. We've already talked about Limp Bizkit and Korn. We had Rage Against the Machine with the number one album with The Battle of Los Angeles. And uh, then we had, well, I'll just say it, Creed. But in October, Nine Inch Nails reached number one with the double album, The Fragile. Nine Inch Nails with The Day the World Went Away, which, if we want to make a strained analogy, can be given an actual date. June 1st. 1999, something happened on that day that would make the world of music as we know it go away, or at the very least, destroy it, make it hurt badly. We'll get to that in just a second. The internet was still a novel thing in 1999. A lot of people were still using dial-up modems, so downloads and uploads were ponderously slow. 
Netscape was the favored browser of millions, although version 5 of Internet Explorer, which was released in March 1999 and was a big part of the new operating system called Windows 98, would soon spell its end. Some, like David Bowie, saw a digital future coming. On September 21st of 1999, he released his Hours album, and it became the first album by a major artist available for legal online download. Those with the know-how and the patience to download such a large file over a slow connection were able to get the album two weeks before its physical release. And God, that must have taken forever. Let's see, we have a 47-minute album. That's about 420 megabytes of audio downloaded using a 5600 baud modem, which is what a lot of people were still using back then, meant a download time of about, uh, let's see here, 17 and a half hours if your connection didn't drop and your little sister didn't pick up the extension in the basement. Even if you had a speedy one megabyte per second modem, you're still looking at an hour to get this thing. Still, there were Geeky Bowie fans prepared to wait it out to hear songs like this. Something about David Bowie and Thursday's Child, track one from his 1999 album Hours, the first full album by a major artist on a major label made available for a digital download over this thing called the Internet. Like I said, it was a long, long download at home. But if you were at university, well, that was a much different thing. As bastions of research and technology, universities and colleges had high-speed internet connections, none of this pokey dial-up stuff, students started using the internet through their schools to trade music that had been encoded into an easily transportable, infinitely copyable, and totally unprotected file format called MP3. Now, the process could still be clumsy and frustrating. It did require a certain level of geekiness for it all to work. But then on June 1st, 1999, a student at Northeastern University in Boston named Sean Fanning introduced some friends to a new program he had written called Napster. It made trading MP3s a breeze, and people went mad for it. And the era of peer-to-peer -peer file sharing was off and running. Now, Sean's friends were supposed to keep this all a secret. Yeah, good luck with that. In just a few days, Napster spread from 30 people to more than 15,000. And by the fall of 1999, there were 150,000 registered users trading 3.5 million music files. At first, the music industry paid little attention to the fact that people were ripping CDs to their hard drives and then trading them with other people all over the world. The first real indication that the industry was waking up came in the spring of 2000, when Metallica realized that an unreleased song was circulating on the Napster network. Now, the band had been burned once before. On August 12, 1996, an online outfit calling itself Compressed to Audio shared what we think was the very first shareable MP3. To the best of anyone's knowledge, the first song uploaded and shared this way was Metallica's Until It Sleeps, a song that had yet to be released. It didn't do the band much damage because MP3 file trading was still in its infancy, but still, they paid attention. And now, another song was everywhere. It was a demo of a track called I Disappear. Here is that track that was floating around on Napster. Gone, as as 
When Metallica realized that this unauthorized, unreleased demo of I Disappear was circulating around the planet via Napster, the decision was made that this could not be tolerated. So, on April 13, 2000, the band filed a lawsuit against Napster for aiding and abetting in the theft of their music. 335,435 Napster users were on a printout, each of whom downloaded one or more of 95 Metallica songs. This printout spread over 60,000 pages and detailed 1.4 million copyright infringements. As we all know now, Napster was eventually sued into extinction, but it was too late. New file sharing programs were multiplying like rabbits. And here's why they were so popular. Music fans felt that they were hitting back at the man for overcharging them for CDs for decades. Why spend 20 bucks for a piece of plastic when you could get whatever you wanted for free? Suddenly, people could afford way more music than they could have ever hoped to in the old world. The extent to which Napster turned people on to the idea of digital music files cannot be understated. The disruptive power of the internet had been unleashed, and there was no going back. The file-sharing revolution wasn't just bad for rock. It would end up being bad for the entire music industry. So bad, in fact, that we will devote an entire program to what happened later in the series. I want to back up a bit and address a complaint that many music fans, especially rock fans, had at the end of the 90s. Ever since the compact disc was announced in late 1982, consumers were told, yeah, yeah, don't worry, prices for CDs will eventually come down. Problem is, they didn't, at least not enough in the eyes of music fans. The music industry had no incentive to drop prices. People were buying more and more and more CDs every year. Profit margins were really fat. Sales peaked in 2000. In the U.S. alone, 943 million CDs were sold. Now consider this. Part of the reason that number was so high was due to the fact that the industry had phased out the concept of the single in many territories. What's that, you want just that one song from the band? <laughs> Too bad. Buy the whole album for 15 or 20 bucks or whatever. This was especially galling for alt-rock fans because there seemed to be a growing number of acts with just one good song. Now, whether that perception was correct or not is academic. What matters is that this was the thinking out there, and it was getting stronger. Now, if you look at the charts for 2000, we have bands like Mest, Eve Six, Fuel, Oleander, Lifehouse, Primitive Radio Gods, the Presidents of the United States of America, all fine groups, but outside of one or two or maybe three songs over several albums, what do they have? It was like with the spectacular rise of pop and hip-hop, the music industry had lost much of its interest in rock and were kind of just going through the motions and just tossing a lot of stuff against the wall. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. That's Weedus from the summer of 2000 with Teenage Dirtbag. Debut single, one-hit wonder, and endemic of the ennui that plagued the rock and alt-rock scenes. There were other disappointments, too. Rage Against the Machine broke up. The Smashing Pumpkins played their final show. The punk revival of the middle 90s had run aground, and bands like Green Day and The Offspring were having struggles. So it was all just hopeless, right? Rock was dying 
and it would soon be exterminated under a crush of pop and hip-hop and electronica. Well, no, obviously. But it would take a lot of work to reboot things. More in a sec. While the state of rock and alt-rock looked pretty dire at the end of the 90s and the beginning of the aughts, there were some bright spots, though you had to kind of squint to see them. Take, for example, an album that was released on July 10th, 2000 in the UK. It was offered up with little fanfare, but seemed to find some fans. On November 7th, 2000, it was released in North America by Network, the indie label based out of Vancouver. Some critics found it boring, too low-key and, well, sappy and corny. Reviews pointed out maybe two songs that were worth one's attention. But still, the album gained more and more traction. After a while, it appeared that something was going on. And it was. 20 years on, this group, which had had such an inauspicious start to their career, had sold more than 100 million records. Coldplay would be part of a generation of new bands that would kickstart alt-rock in the aughts. And this is where we will pick things up on part two. Okay, I'm I'm sorry that the first installment of our history of alt-rock in the aughts has been such a downer. But really, if you were around back then, you know that was the prevailing mood. Rock was in trouble. There was a lot of desperation and discouragement. Somebody needed to ride to the rescue and save rock, but who would that be? That's what we'll look at on the next episode. Rock and alt-rock would rise again. And this resurrection would start with a new generation of artists, with new sounds, new attitudes. And they arrived just in time to ride the wave of a new demographic change. Now, let me tell you something. When it comes to cycles in music, it is always about demographics. And that will be among the things that we talk about on part two of our history of alt-rock and the aughts. This program is available as a podcast. You can subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Everything is always free. Please rate and review if you can. My website is ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It is updated every day, and there's also a free daily newsletter that goes along with it. You should subscribe. And we can always meet up through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All email can go to alan at alancross.ca. And I'm always very interested in what you have to say. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.